Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're so glad that you could join us for Sunday worship today. As Aaron, uh, Pastor Aaron just said, we are in a sermon series called The Liturgy, and we're taking a look at how and why we do what we do on Sunday services. And this week, we're taking a look at the prayer of confession. Now, what we could say from the start is that prayer in general is the chief act of faith. Uh, John Calvin said this in his Institutes when he said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. Just as faith is born from the gospel, so through it our hearts are trained to call upon God's name. In other words, the surest way to know that someone is a person of faith is to see if they pray. That is to say that what makes you Christian is inextricably tied to the fact that we call upon God's name, which is what prayer does. We call upon God's name. Also, Tim Keller's definition of prayer is prayer is, a con- is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. In other words, prayer is uh, marked by a relationship of response to a God who has spoken to us his word of grace. Now today, we're looking at Psalm 32, which is a song of repentance. King David is the author of the prayer. Psalm, and if there was anyone who experienced the dramatic swings of sin's destructive power to God's grace-saving power, it was him. David was a man dearly loved by God, but he was also deeply a flawed person whose sin destroyed parts of him, his family, and even the kingdom. And so this psalm is like the story of an old man who has experienced every high and every low in his life and wishes for us to gain from his insights. So what are his experiences and what are his insights about prayer of confession? I think in Psalm 32, David, and of course God through David, is going to teach us at least three things. That's the benefits of confessing sin, the consequences of not confessing sin, and the way we should then confess our sins. The benefits, the consequences of not, and the way we should then confess our sins. Let's begin by looking at the benefits of confessing sin. If you'll look with me to the passage again, to verse 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, This is an example of what we call a beatitude, and here's how the language of beatitudes work. Blessed or happy is another translation of that word blessed. Blessed is this kind of person. That's how it works. Or put another way, the person with this kind of quality is blessed or happiest. 
If you remember, Jesus uses this language in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor of spirit, the, the, poor, uh, the mourning, uh, those who are meek. So you have a favor or a blessing attached to a certain quality that someone has. So what David is saying is the happiest person in the world, the fullest person in the world, the most blessed person in the world is someone whose sins are forgiven and someone whom God does not count sin as their record. But, you know, to the average secular modern person in New York reading this, this could be a little bit of a turnoff because notice the quality of the person being blessed. This blessed or happiest person in the world is someone who's deceitful, is someone who's a cheater, someone who lies, someone who pretends, someone who's a lawbreaker, someone who's a sinner. And it's this kind of person who's being blessed. But, you know, this seems unfair because the prevailing paradigm of the day is what? It's this. You get what you deserve. So if you're talented, you deserve a good job. If you're hardworking or goal-accomplishing, Uh, you deserve a raise. Uh, You're favored if you're desirable. So if you're beautiful, you'll get preferential treatment. If you're humorous, you'll be liked and have many friends. I mean, this seems to be the law of the jungle, right? The world would say that if you have the qualities that deserve favor, then that's fair. And no one can say anything about that because it's you who earned it. But the Bible would say the opposite, the exact opposite. It would say that you get what you don't deserve, that you're favored not in spite of your undesirability, but because of it. Now, at this point, we'll need Apostle Paul's help to further and fully understand what this means, because he actually quotes Psalm 32, the first two verses in Romans chapter 4, to explain what David meant in these two verses. And And the way that Paul is going to explain David is by stating exactly what David said, but just in the positive. And so David said, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven and the one whom God does not count sin as their record. But this is how Paul is going to say it, just the same thing in the positive. He says in Romans 4, verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Apostle Paul essentially says the happiest person, the most blessed person, the most full person in the world is one who has faith that their sins are forgiven and whom God counts righteousness as their record. Paul helps us to realize the full extent of what David said about the benefits of confessing one's sin. It's Two parts. One is forgiveness of sins, which is this canceling of debt. It's like loan forgiveness. And it's the counting of righteousness to our account. Uh, Imagine with me for a second that uh, it's the holiday and you and your friends uh, decide to go away and so you guys rent a car and you guys are speeding down the highway and a police officer pulls you over because you're like 30 miles over the speed limit. And the police officer takes your license and registration. I, I kind of know how this goes. I've been pulled over before. And then he goes back to his car to kind of, you know, put, put into the machine all your information. And then he comes back. But imagine that the police officer comes back and hands you the ticket that you deserve. But when you look at the ticket, you notice something a little bit peculiar. You notice that it's not your name on the ticket, but it's actually the police officer's name. Meaning that he put his name instead of your name 
taking the penalty of the ticket for you. Now, in the very next instant, you get a notification on your phone. You get a notification on your phone from your bank, and it says that there was a direct deposit of a million dollars into your checking account. Um, and you kind of see the note of that notification, and you, you realize that actually it was that police officer who had direct deposited that money into your account. Well, what's happening there? Well, two things. One is this loan forgiveness thing, right? This canceling of debt. It's the money that you should have paid. It's the debt that you incurred to the state or the government or whatever, uh, but you don't have to pay that anymore. And as if that wasn't amazing enough, right? Uh, there's this direct deposit of a million dollars by the one who took your penalty. Well, same thing is happening when we confess our sins to the Lord. There's forgiveness. There's a canceling of the moral debt we incurred to a holy God, and our balance is brought to zero. So we're going from negative to zero, and that in itself is wonderful and life-changing. But not only this, uh, righteousness is counted to our record. When God sees us, he doesn't charge us with the record of our own sin, but he credits his own righteousness, Christ's righteousness to our account. You see how even a sinner, someone with the qualities of moral, uh, who doesn't have the qualities of moral uprightness, could be the most blessed and happiest person in the world. Now, what can this do for you? What can this do for you? Because right now, up until this point, it's kind of theology. It's kind of up here. Uh, But think about all the positive effects of these benefits in your life today. Because if you think about it, a forgiven person can be, for the first time in their life, a really generous and loving person. Uh, There's a story in the scriptures about a sinful woman with the alabaster jar. Um, Jesus is dining with the Pharisees and in comes this woman, a sinful woman, and we're told that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. You perhaps guess her background and her history and her line of work in the city. But she knows that Jesus is there and so she brings before him this alabaster flask of ointment and what she starts to do is just incredible. She goes to Jesus and at his feet starts to weep and to wipe his feet with her hair and and the ointment from the alabaster jar, just breaking it apart um, according to the account of Mark. And the Pharisees are there and they're thinking, and they're judging this woman. They're thinking, what is this woman doing? Uh, We're, you know, Pharisees. Don't they know that, you know, this is is a travesty. This is uh, almost sacrilegious what this woman is doing. But Jesus answers, well, Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he gives this teaching. A a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon correctly answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, and you can just uh, uh, kind of feel the tone of Jesus uh, teaching here in response. Do you see this woman? He says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them from her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. 
But he who is forgiven little loves little. You see, because in Jesus, this woman knew all of her sins as a woman of the city could be forgiven, it changes her and it moves her to give of the most expensive things she had in a lavish and generous act of devotion. Uh, Jesus says about her because she was forgiven much, she can love much. Uh, You can love people in a way you've never before if you know you're forgiven much. If someone asks you to go one mile with them, you'll go two. You go out of your way to love people because you know the riches of the forgiveness that you've gotten. Another benefit of that theology stuff that we covered just a moment ago is that a forgiven person can also become unwavering in the face of offensive people. Have you ever had someone offend you so bad, wronged you so bad that it actually ruined your day? Uh, maybe someone tried to take credit for work you did at work. That, that's got to be aggravating, right? Uh, or someone is just unkind to you, not particularly friendly, very pessimistic, and cutting with their words, not only towards you, but uh, towards the people that you know. And whenever you need to be around this person, your one goal is actually to avoid them because you know they're going to ruin your day. Well, if you're a forgiven person, you also know how to forgive and it's because you know you've been given so much that when you're, uh, much when you've offended God, now when people offend you out of the riches of the forgiveness that you received, you can let people off your hit list and you can forgive them because you know how super tiring holding a grudge is. And so a forgiven person not only knows how to forgive, but what are the effects, what are the, what are the benefits of someone who's uh, received forgiveness? Uh, someone who is less anxious, someone who's less uptight, uh, someone who's just able to let things go because you know how much you've received. This is what we call a big person, a person with a big heart, and we kind of get it now. Because we have been given much, we can love much. Uh, One Christian writer says, you can't shout about God's forgiveness if you're stingy with your own. So the benefits of confessing sin, as you can start to tell, are many, and there, and there are a lot of them. We can sort of flesh this out for the rest of our time, but I want us to go on to the next point here and, and, and to explore uh, this idea. Um, what happens when we don't confess our sins? What happens when we don't confess our sins? Well, the psalmist knows that the blessedness or the benefits of confession But apparently he also knows from experience what happens when you stay silent and don't confess your sins. Now look at the description in verses three to four with me. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now this is someone in the agony and torture of their own silence over their sins. Because, you know, ever, ever had to hide something you shouldn't have, like an incriminating or shameful secret? You know, psychologically speaking, a secret is a great burden or a weight. It'll weigh unbearably heavy on your heart. And it's a shame that you have to carry, you alone. That's how secrets work. And you know that how hidden shame can affect everything else. I mean, 
Obviously, shame is a thing of psychology, right? It's kind of in your head. It's something that you feel. But you know that psychology also affects your physicality, right? You'll, you'll lose a step. You'll lose a pep in your step. It'll also affect your emotions. Uh, you'll, you'll be worried about being found out. So there's this constant anxiety in your heart. Uh, it'll affect your relationships. Of course, you'll be distant with people because you don't want to be found out, right? Every time you get close to people, there isn't a chance that you'll be discovered for who you are. And it's actually one of the reasons why people in the church actually avoid community. Uh, you'll have to pretend with people to continue the facade. And if you stay silent, not confessing sins, there'll be a breakdown of the self. Uh, you'll be like this unstable Jenga formation uh, with too many spaces of silence. You know, in the world of literature, Macbeth may be one of the best characters to help us understand the torment of a heavy and dirtied conscience. Uh, Macbeth, he's so haunted by the treachery of the secret that he holds by himself, which was the fact that he murdered the king uh, to take the throne himself, uh, that he actually starts to see imaginary daggers uh, starts hearing voices that he'll never get peaceful sleep again. And he sees the ghost of another person that he murdered. Everything was okay. But in his conscience, he is seeing uh, the secret that he holds. He becomes all consumed uh, for keeping his crime a secret, that he needs to murder actually more and more people to c sustain the secret. But it eats him from the inside out, and you kind of see that as the play goes on. Uh, Lady Macbeth, who's his wife, is also accomplice to the first murder, and so she starts actually to implode as well, and you see that in the play. And right before actually she commits suicide, uh, because she can't bear the weight of her own conscience. She, she says this about her murders, and you'll find that in your bulletin. She says, out, damned spot, out, I say. Who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Dot, 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 and then... Actually, Macbeth says this later on in the play. He says, I am in blood stepped in so far that I wait, as should I wait no more, returning were as tedious as go over. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that I'm just too far into the secret that I can't stop doing it. And actually, it'll be harder for me to actually come back and reveal the secret. And so I just need to continue. If I should stop waiting in this blood, it's actually going to be harder. And so I just need to continue in the bloody, dirtied conscience of my sin. This is what it's like when we have sins unchecked and undealt with in our lives. The silence will eat us out from the inside. And if you ever had a secret sin that you've been silent about, maybe you've been at the church for a while, but... 
Uh, and, and the fellowships are good, of course, they always are. We just had one yesterday, I heard we had a lot of fun. And the preaching is good, and just the, just the fellowship is just excellent. But you, you've been harboring the secret sin, and it's been eating you aloud, eating you from the inside out. And every time you step into this place for worship, and every time you come into contact with other people of the church, you're reminded of this sin. And, and, but every time we keep silent about it, uh, when you don't get freedom from this thing, it's, it's just like the bars of the jail of your conscience just get heavier and thicker and tougher. This is what happens when we don't confess our sins before a God and stay silent. So in light of all this, how, how should we confess our sins then? You know, what's the appropriate way then to confess our sins and I want to end with uh, talking about verse 5 here. Psalm 32, 5, it says this. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, I said. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's how we need to confess our sins, and it's so simple. Um, I just really want to end with this. It's acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your sin and don't cover it up. Be, be bare before a God who already sees you. Uh, and it seems to be a matter of who's going to cover who. Uh, who's going to cover who? Uh, either you'll cover yourself either through overcompensation, kind of like Macbeth, or you'll be pretending or distancing yourself, or you'll let God cover you. You know, one of the ways, one of the popular ways that people try to cover themselves is to forgive themselves. Have you heard that? It's, it, it's sort of a common recommendation in contemporary kind of therapy methods. Uh, you need to first forgive yourself. It's the only way that you're going to be healed and, and start all over, but it definitely is the starting point. You need to forgive yourself. But you know, this is as nonsensical as it's unhelpful. And I'll just let Justin Taylor kind of take care of it for us before I get a little bit mad. I get a little bit mad thinking about why, why people say this. I think it's just nonsensical and unhelpful. Listen to what Justin Taylor says about uh, forgiving yourself. You know, initially I can appreciate why forgiving yourself might seem like a good idea. For instance, if I was driving drunk and accidentally killed another person, I think I would find the guilt unbearable. I can see why it might seem necessary for me to forgive myself before I can move on with my life. But this is why I can't go there. Forgiveness requires both a victim and an offender. And so to forgive myself means that I am playing both roles. And so a part of me is allowed, even required, to play the victim for something that I did. But I shouldn't get to play the victim for I'm the offender in this case. If I forgive myself, then I am asserting that I, like the person I killed, am the victim of my sin. Is that enough said or what? I, you can't play both the victim and the offender. This is pretend. It's not real. This is fantasy land. And not to mention, it's gross injustice to say that you are also the offender and uh, the offended when you are the one who is responsible for, the, for, for killing somebody. It's an attempt to cover yourself just to make yourself feel better. It just doesn't work. It's utterly inadequate. You can't cover yourself. 
You can't speak a word of forgiveness over yourself. It has to be spoken over you by the one you offended. Because you know what this is like if you speak forgiveness to yourself versus speaking forgiveness or being spoken forgiveness over you. We know the difference. The difference is this. It's like sowing fig leaves to hide your shame. You know, in Genesis, we're told of that story where Adam and Eve, after disobeying God and is cast into the curse of God, um, actually right before that, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did not try. They, they tried to cover up their sin, uh, and you know how they did it. They, they sewed fig leaves together and uh, made for themselves loincloths, which also translates girdle, and so they just basically took leaves and took other material to fashion for them some sort of a, a gadget to girdle all that stuff up. But that's absolutely inadequate, wouldn't you say? But you know, after the curse, what are we told that God does for them after their feeble attempt to cover themselves? Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Adam and Eve took for themselves a couple leaves and some other material, fashioned it all together. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't adequate. It wasn't adequate. So what does God do for them? He covers them with a skin of garment and clothes them. But you know what the difference is between leaves and skin, right? Uh, What does it take, in other words, for God to cover their shame? Well, it took a sacrifice. Well, it took a living thing Uh, to give its life so that their shame could be covered. And this is how we let God cover us. You know, unlike Lady Macbeth, who saw the blood of her victim covering her, for us, we let the blood of the Savior cover us. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was on the cross, who went to the cross so that we could be covered in his blood, the one whose bone wasted away through his groaning all day long in the agony and torture by crucifixion. And Jesus in the silence, not of his secret sins, but in the silence of his actual innocence and righteousness, endured the scorching heat of God's holy wrath in our place. And God let this happen to him, Jesus Christ, so that we could say what? The same thing Isaiah said. When he said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of righteousness, the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, come to him with prayers of confession and don't cover up your sins because you know that you're covered in the blood of the Lamb who takes away your sins. He took on your sins to death so that you could be forgiven and free. And so we, we, we shout and we celebrate together as a church now and forever by the Spirit. First uh, John 1, 8-9. Because we know God's word is going to stand. And so what is the word that we can take to the bank for all of eternity? It's this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
I want to close our time with um, leading us in a prayer. Um, And I want to read just Psalm 130 for us to close. Now, this psalm is a model prayer for those who seek a restored relationship with God in the aftermath of the consequences of sin. And here, the psalmist exudes confidence, which is based on God's forgiving nature. And he calls on his community to vest their hope in God. And so I want, I want to do that with us today, to end with God's word spoken over us, to know that our sins are forgiven in Christ. So will you bow your heads with me as you close our time together with prayer? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of my sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and it's his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.